Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode 129 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined in person by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, Husker fans and college football fans. Yes, we are back for an in-person episode of College Football Throwdown. I am here in the beautiful Traverse City, Michigan, visiting family for this next week. Uh, and we are here today to talk about Nebraska's loss to Georgia Southern, as well as the uh, sudden news that our head coach, Scott Frost, has been fired, as well as the many crazy upsets that happened in week two of college football. Uh, so there's a lot to get to today. And of course, we are a college football podcast by college football fans for college football fans father-son duo here to talk about all things Nebraska Cornhuskers as well as the wider world of college football. And we always kick things off with a beverage. I think we could especially use one after Saturday's performance. Yes, absolutely. So we got a pair of uh, Labatt Blues Labatt here. Blue. One of the classic beers of most Michiganders. Yep. All here right. Here we go. And we get to drink it together. Cheers, son. Cheers. Awesome. <laughs> mm. All right. Also... Listeners out there might hear some rain in the background. We're recording this from Dad's RV, and it is a rainy Sunday night here in Michigan, so keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, to start things off, uh, of course, we have the Georgia Southern game, which is another one of those games where uh, we were expected to win um, and should have you know, been able to use it as a confidence booster going into the really big Oklahoma game that we have next week. And we gave our predictions on the previous podcast, uh, both being optimistic, thinking that we would win. Uh, I predicted 42-28, while you predicted a uh, higher scoring 49-35. Um, and the final score ended up, of course, being uh, 45 for Georgia Southern, 42 for Nebraska. So we were on the right track that it was going to be a high scoring game because uh, we saw that Georgia Southern put up like 50 plus points on their previous opponent uh, the week before us. Um, but the fact that our, uh, defense ended up giving up over 600 yards to their offense, uh, was a shock, I think to us. And it could have been even worse in terms of points because Georgia Southern made some mistakes, um, that, you know, if they had been a little bit more efficient, they could have gotten, you know, to 50 or 60 points. Right. And that's the bot. The bottom line is, is that we were simply unable to make any kind of real significant adjustment over the course of that entire game, even though it was apparent from the very get-go that our defensive alignment, they were picking it apart. Right. And uh, to Shenander, the defensive coordinator's credit, in the second half, we did switch to more of a zone for the passing game, and the defensive line did stiffen up in that you know they got into some third and short situations or fourth downs where we were able to, um, you know, stop them at the goal line and some things like that. Um, so I, I think we did make some adjustments that helped later on. You know, they weren't getting such easy, you know, one single breakaway run for a touchdown sort of things in the second half, but we still weren't able to consistently stop them. And when it came down to it at the very end of the fourth quarter, right after we scored and we're up by four, um, they just needed to get one stop and it was even down to a fourth and two where if we stop them there and get like one more first down, it was basically game over and we gave up that fourth down. It, 
there even you'll recall there were like two opportunities potentially for interceptions on that last drive of Georgia Southern that we couldn't bring in, and sure enough, they have a nice drive down the field to score. Big big play, leaving us with yeah like thirty seconds left, thirty six seconds, um, and we're able to get close enough for a long fifty two yard field goal, but can't pull it through, and once again lose another under seven point game. Right. But it's the same M.O., okay? Uh, it comes in different forms. Uh, yesterday, it was uh, the too many and very untimely turnover issue that has plagued Scott during his entire time at Nebraska and, in fact, plagued the previous coach, Mike Riley, as well. Uh, we actually won the turnover battle. Right. We, so there were some areas where we were improved over what we have been in some other previous games but the bottom line is we still were making bonehead decisions our individual players were making bonehead decisions and then just from a schematic standpoint what shenander came up with to defend this very unique offense that very much a spread literally sideline to sideline spread offense that they run we were unable to defend it at all it was ridiculous how wide open both receivers and running backs were pretty much throughout the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, they they had two interceptions while we had none, and neither team had any fumbles. Now, we had some close calls where, as you recall, there was one that was called a fumble and then got called that Reversed. the yeah that uh, Smothers was down. was down by a millisecond, basically, before the ball came out. Um, so we got a bit lucky, you know. Uh, in so many cases, it seems like we're snake-bitten when it comes to luck. But this time, we actually did get a few lucky breaks. For example, at the end of the first half, when they had a nice drive, or right on our goal line, and then had a uh, error uh, when snapping the ball that then caused the 10-second uh, de- delay uh, because the game was down under two minutes that basically ended the first half right then and there when they easily should have gotten a field goal, if not a touchdown. Right. Uh, so the, we went into halftime tied when we really shouldn't have been. And, and um, so that is the real crux of this. This is the, just another game and the many games that demonstrate lack of preparation, lack of fundamental instruction, like guys not understanding the fundamentals. I understand that they were running a very unique defensive setup because of the offense that this other team was running, but you still have fundamentals. And our gap integrity at the line of scrimmage was atrocious, partially because we were putting literally six or five guys in some cases in the box against their offensive line. And so they were able to hand off to a running back. He had to make one guy miss, and he was to the house. And he didn't do that once. They did that like three times. And at some point, you've got to adjust, bring another player into that box, and go to a zone structure that allows you to do that. Okay, That means you're going to give up some short passes, but over time, if you play it right, you're going to potentially get interceptions or you're going to knock a ball loose because you're going to ring a guy's bell as soon as he catches the ball. And uh, we didn't do any of that stuff. And that's the part that is just fundamentals of football, basic stuff. I don't know what the hell they're thinking. Right. Not to mention all the bad missed tackles, you know, that got them lots of extra yards versus if our guys had just oh, wrapped them up yeah. at the point of contact. Uh, 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 yeah, you, you you can tell my voice is still a little, a little raspy. <laughs> and that was a particularly uh, 
uh, intense item of my focus last night while watching the game. And I'm not going to name the players. Anybody who watched this game would be able to recognize them rather quickly. But guys that, I mean, you, you have to be able to, as a coaching staff, you have to replace a guy who's missing tackles like that. Even if he, you know he's the better player, he isn't on that day. So get him the hell out of there and, and have a talk with him and maybe let him watch from the sidelines for a, for a, uh, a uh, series or two and then let him back out and see if he tackles better. But they didn't do that. Right. Um, and one area where we were making a lot of mistakes was in terms of penalties. Um, we had 10 penalties for 77 yards. Well, they had three for 15. Now, those three were significant, you know, for example, like the one at the end of the first half, right, uh, for them. Uh, but they got four first downs just off of our penalties of their total of 34 right. first downs. And, and their third down conversion for the game was quite incredible. I don't know the exact number. Uh, well, that's actually an interesting stat. Uh, we were equal in terms of third down conversions, 9 of 13 for both teams, uh, but uh, we had zero fourth downs uh, attempted or made, whereas they had two. So really, that's, that's more like 11 and of And they made fif- both of them. Right. So 11 of 15, right, if you combine the two together. Right. Um, it, well, and but they started the game off like five for five or six for six. It was so early seven on for the, seven. Actually, okay. <laughs> early on in the game, every single time they got to a third down, they converted. So our defense just simply was not able to get them off the field, and as a result, that the, the defense was on the field quite a bit. Uh, you know, because um, they couldn't stop them, and then our offense was either scoring quickly also. Or it was uh, given up a three and out, in which case the defense was back on the field again. Right. Uh, And in general, you know, the offense obviously did play pretty well. We scored 42 points. We had a total of uh, 575 yards of total offense, 257 rushing, 318 passing. You know, so in most situations, you would like to think that that would be enough to win you a football game, especially when you're playing you know, an F uh, Sunbelt conference school. Um, But then they had uh, 233 yards of rushing, uh, 409 yards of passing, and for a total of 642 yards. That's painful to even listen to. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that that was the story of the night, was that, you know, uh, Casey Thompson was playing pretty well, you know, completing the majority of his passes and even running it in certain situations uh, where he needed to, to, you know, get a hard first down or some good yards. Um, and Anthony Grant had another good night. He had uh, 27 carries for total 138 yards. AJ Allen had eight carries for 76 yards. Wow. Marcus Washington had six catches for 123 yards. Yeah. So we, we got ha- talent. Exactly. We have talent and we could see it out on the field. You know, there were a few situations where, we did, you know, like the very first uh, series of the game, we got the ball. We immediately had a penalty to push us back, and Casey Thompson got sacked, and we basically went three and out and kicked it back to them immediately. So it was not off to a good start to the game. Right. But in general, offense played pretty well. It's the defense that majorly let us down in this game. Right. And just to make sure that we uh, don't get too focused in on this game, and understand that this is a bigger picture issue, right? This is a this is a program that was undisciplined, that had a variety of 
of uh, errors and mistakes and decision-making processes that were um, either knee-jerk or just poorly thought through. And as a result, uh, they continue to blow up in, our, in, in the face of the team. Uh, I, I want to minimize my criticism of the players and maximize my criticism of the coaching staff because I really think a lot of it is on them and not just about preparation for this week. It's about what they do in the offseason. It's about what they were doing all spring and all fall camp. When he got the extension to keep his job for another year, even though most people in the country would have agreed that it was time to fire him last year, uh, the whole logic was to give him another year um, to, uh, you know, right the ship, so to speak. And, uh, um, you know, there was enough evidence in those first three games to clearly show that he did not make good use of his time in this past offseason. He accumulated some great talent, but he did not put together the, the situation that he needed to right. for success. Right. You know, we got the new offensive coaching staff, a lot of new transfers, you know, new special teams coach. You know, we've seen some of the results of that. Like you say, you know, there's clearly talent on this team, but the same fundamental problems are still there in that we're not playing good, sound, fundamental football. You know, we aren't practicing enough with full tackle in practices, so our players aren't ready for it when it actually comes to be game time. Uh, you know, and when you look at Scott on the sidelines, you know, he's typically just kind of hanging his head or, you know, not really emoting much. And then they'd show Clay Helton, USC's former coach on the Georgia Southern side of the ball. And he's out there yelling and getting his players fired up, you know, and cheering every time they score and stuff like that. Right. You know, and it, it seems clear that obviously it's a tough situation for Scott knowing he has the, you know, axe over his head, so to speak. Um but you'd like to see, you know, him really putting in 110% effort, right, to try to save this opportunity that he's been given. Right, and trying to inspire his team with some uh, show of emotion himself that, hey, this is important to me, this should be important to you, and we have an opportunity to win this football game. You didn't see him even getting in there with an intense clap of the hands with his team. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't even in there doing a little bit of, of that. He was just kind of off on his own whenever they would put the camera on him. And yet the opponent, his that coach, Helton, you you know, every time they had the camera on that dude, he was showing intensity. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, like you say, you know, another kind of unfortunate last-minute loss to a team that we should be able to beat. Um, and... Uh, we were out doing some family activities here today, visiting some of the beautiful wineries that are here in Traverse City. And then Dad goes, oh no, or oh wow. And uh, turns out Scott Frost was fired just the day after this disappointing loss. Um, a bit of a surprise to us. I know we talked a little bit last week about, you know, the potential uh, what, in terms of the potential time frame where Scott might be fired because October 1st was the date that uh, his buyout for his contract went down significantly by, I believe, $7 million. Um, and there was this, this discussions of, well, does it make sense to fire him mid-season? You know, do you want to wait till the end, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Trev pulled the trigger pretty quickly. We've even seen a comment suggesting that he was thinking about it seriously right after the Ireland game with Northwestern. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> I, 
I'm sorry, I, I have no speech on that. <laughs> yeah, and it's just so frustrating for us Nebraska fans because at the time that Scott was hired, nobody was questioning it because he was coming oh, off no. of an amazing undefeated season with UCF. He was one of the hottest coaches in the country, Absolutely. and he's, you know, the prodigal son coming back home, you know, a good old boy, and, we, yeah. and he's young, so if he was successful, he could have been at Nebraska for decades to come. So everybody wanted him to succeed really badly, especially after the whole Mike Riley situation, you know, when we thought, okay, having a young coach who can bring more energy into the program is really what we need right now. Right. And it's just so frustrating that whatever magic he was able to make happen at UCF just never came together here. Right. And and that is the thing. And I will wholeheartedly admit that I was 100% on board with the Scott hire. He was the right guy at that time. I, I would have argued to my grave about that. So I, I cannot criticize that hire, right, from the previous uh, athletic director and such. Um, and we, we gave Scott Frost every opportunity, including committing to build the new facilities, which are going to be done now for whoever the new coach is. I mean, th- we'll, we'll talk about that on another podcast, but, but the reality is Nebraska is uniquely positioned to attract a lot of coaches who might be interested in this job, even though we have sucked for 20 years. Yep. Well, it, you know, we've had a lot of these, uh, we had a lot of these discussions last year when it seemed like it was uh, pretty likely that Scott was going to get fired last year. Cause we had such a disappointing season. Um, and you know, there's a lot that makes Nebraska appealing, right? Cause you're going to get paid good money, you know, not like top tier money, but good money. You know, you, you have a rabid fan base. that's going to be behind you 100%. And if you can be the one to turn the ship around, you'll be beloved across the whole state. You know, you'll be a superstar within the state of Nebraska. Cause that, had football coach is one of the most well-known people in the whole state, you know? So there's a lot of upsides to it. You know, we can clearly, we can get talent. We have great facilities, you know, the support staff, the money dedicated to the football program is very good, you know, in terms of the wider country and everything. Um, So we just need somebody with, I think what we're looking for this time, we won't go through all of the many possibilities that are out there for a potential head coach, but we're really looking for somebody with experience and sound fundamentals, you know, we don't, I, I'm not looking for somebody to come in with like, I got a, such a fancy new system, you know, it's going to wow everybody, you know, just come in and drill down to the basics and get those down to a science because that's, what's been lacking right. in the Riley era and the frost era in the uh, press conference announcing, uh, that, uh, um, Scott was fired. Um, Trev Albers was very clear that leadership, and that doesn't mean coaching, he spoke in terms of leadership being uh, clearly one of his top priorities. Character being another, and then fundamentals, strong, powerful football, right? And pride, commitment, you know, dedication, all those characteristics that are indicative of, of the for lack of a better term, the the past age of Nebraska football under Bob Devaney and Tom Osborne, where we had that as uh, as staples, as anchors to our program. And uh, so he's not looking, like you say, he's not looking for somebody who's got the newfangled defense or the newfangled offense nearly as much as he's looking for somebody who has a track record of being a fundamentals coach 
and who's going to take what talent he has and mold an offense around it. Exactly. One other thing he mentioned in there was, uh, you know, one of the big reasons why he chose to fire Scott now, right? Because it is early, obviously, only game three into the season. Um, but he kept emphasizing how this was about the players, how he wants to give them the opportunity to salvage the season, give them hope, you know, give them a new perspective, a new mindset. Um, and we have uh, Mickey Joseph, our wide receivers coach, is going to be the interim head coach, uh, which seems to be, you know, of the assistant coaches available. He makes sense to step into that role. You know, somebody well, that people respect. He, he also had the title of associate head coach. Right. And, um, and, and Shenander who's defensive coordinator, clearly has his hands full uh, to focus on his side of the ball and and figure out what the heck's going wrong and make them better. Yeah. Okay, so, so I think that Shenander would have been the logical choice as the, the more longstanding defensive coordinator. You know, longstanding, uh, he was a member of Scott's staff down in Orlando. So the bottom line is, is I think they, uh, at least Trev viewed it as, Shenander's got his hands full. He needs to focus on what he's got to focus on. And uh, and this is about the kids. You know, he kept talking about this is for the players. And, and he's he's basically investing $7.5 million that he could have saved by waiting three weeks. He's investing that uh, to give this group of football players a chance to have a, a season that still can be turned around. If he waited three more weeks, I think he felt like by then the season would be in the bag, so to speak, and there there would be no chance of a turnaround. But now he feels like maybe he's given um, somebody uh, or the team a chance to maybe still pull this rabbit out of a hat and and make it into a bowl game or something. Right. And one other thing he mentioned during his press conference was talking about like uh, the physicality of the players and how he wants to make that a uh, focus of the team again. Right. Which is music to our ears. Absolutely. <laughs> Certainly. Basics and fundamentals. And and then we'll we'll worry about getting the uh, the the fancier sides of the sport uh, to emerge on a, as characteristics of our team after our fundamentals are in place. Mhm. Yep. Um of course, in some of those discussions about uh, potential coaches, one that seems like it's probably not likely is Urban Meyer, who's obviously uh, has great uh, acumen as a coach, you know, has won national championships and all that stuff, uh, but has plenty of character issues uh, that have followed him from job to job. So it doesn't I, seem I, like... I wouldn't say it's an absolute no, uh, but I would be very surprised uh, if... Trev was able to get comfortable with that history that that he would come with, but I, I would tell you this: if he had conversations with Urban Meyer, Ur, the one thing Urban Meyer is, if you watch him on Fox, you know uh, the pregame show and stuff, the guy's brilliant, and his ability to articulate and break down complicated uh, football concepts, he's excellent. He right. he's really great in that role as an analyst, to be truthful. But he also it also shows his acumen as a coach, and so could I sell my soul to the devil for five or six years because Urban's not a young man, and then maybe allow a guy uh, some other younger coach to be his understudy with the idea that okay Urban's going to help 
build this thing and get it going in the right direction, and then some young coordinator that might come along with him is the heir apparent, much like he did with with the coach at uh, Ohio State. You know, he or Urban became uh, the head coach again at Ohio State after he served his suspension, uh, only to have uh, the the new coach uh, brought in who was uh, outstanding and was his coordinator. So. Uh, Urban Meyer has done that before. That would be the scenario I could. That's the only scenario I could see. Right. Ryan Day. Ryan Day. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Couldn't remember his name. But bottom line is that um, you know something like that would be a possibility. But otherwise, I think Scott's going to be looking for you know that. Um, you mean Trev? In, or yeah, excuse me. Trev <laughs> Albers is is going to be looking for um, you know that that coach that's probably in their forties, early fifties. Who's maybe got, you know, 10, 15 years left, uh, 20 years left in, in his coaching career, and uh, who's a real intense guy. One thing that was very, he, he made a point to say it, and he said this before, is he's looking for a guy that's a grinder. He's looking for somebody who is focused on football. Football is his life. He doesn't have a bunch of outside interests and hobbies. He is a football guy, and that's the kind of guy that, that, uh, Trev once. Right. Um, one that we talked about uh, last year when a lot of these discussions came up is uh, Dave Aranda from Baylor, who you love just from his, uh, both his play calling style and just his attitude as a leader, right? right. Talking about that side of things, which is clearly important to Trev as well. Absolutely. Um, one difficulty, though, being that he just took a new contract with Baylor not too long ago, so he would be an expensive option. Right, and 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 I don't know that he would have any interest in it, but uh, he had spent a considerable amount of time at um, uh, uh, Wisconsin as their defensive coordinator. He was defensive coordinator at LSU when they won a national title, and then he got the Baylor job, and he's done great things there. He's continued the great things that Matt Rule had kind of begun there. Um, so... And Matt Rule's another name that's kind of on the list, too. Um, so there, there's a surprising number of what I would consider good options that, at least at this point, seems like they might be available to, to Nebraska. And when you consider the things you just um, quick, quickly summarized, I mean, we've, we've got a brand new $150 million-plus facility. We're going to have one of the top uh, of, uh, you know, athletic facilities in the country starting next year. Uh, we have a fan base that even though we have socked for, you know, 15 years, still fills the stadium every weekend, every home game. Um, the amount of money that we get because we're a member of the Big Ten Conference, it's one of the tops in the country. So, so all of those things line up. If you're a football coach and you have aspirations, why wouldn't you take this job? This job, well, because it's hard to recruit there. Well, if you're a guy like a Mickey Joseph or a Dave Aranda or somebody like that, hey, you have confidence in yourself, you have confidence in the kind of staff that you could put together, boom, you're on your way with some great co uh, coaches who, who know how to recruit, and the magic uh, and the passion of Nebraska football will draw people in. And if we started having success, oh my gosh, it's a freight train. Right. Although I can also see, uh, you know, uh, the the passion of Nebraska fans, as we know, is a double edged sword. It is, you know, because of the scrutiny that the coach is under as well. Um, and some coaches might look out there and say, "Well, the golden boy came home, you know, Scott Frost, to try to 
uh, pick Nebraska out of the mud, and even he messed up, and they tossed him out. You know, so what what, what what's going to happen to me? You know. Well, I, okay, I'll turn that around on you though. I'll tell you that. Oh my gosh, look at how patient they were with Scott Frost. Everybody and their brother said that that we should have fired him. Same with Bo Pelini. I mean, most people were clamoring for Bo to be fired nationally before us because he had had some on the field and even in the locker room or uh, hallway uh, incidences that were very uh, public and not good representations on the university. And so a lot of national pundits and such were calling for his firing. So Nebraska actually has a demonstrated history of patience with the exception of one thing, which was Frank Solich. The, 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 the mistake, you know, to begin this whole process of, of turnover of coaches was the mistake to not give Frank Solich more time. That's the only criticism that someone could have, that we had fired a coach who was so consistently good and had been so devoted to the program. That's the only one that I can look back on and say, that's legitimate criticism. All the others, no. And if anything, I would argue that I think what's been demonstrated is the incredible patience that the administration and the fan base has given him because the fan base did not abandon the team. We're still filling that stadium. Right. You know, so so uh, someone's going to look at that who has a little confidence in themselves and they're going to say, I can be that guy that brings Nebraska back. Not not the national championships of Tom Osborne, golden era, blah, 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 but to competitiveness and competing for Big Ten West titles kind of thing. Right. Yeah, that's what we're looking for right now. And get paid uh, handsomely. Yeah. So to summarize it, you know, in terms of the financial side of deciding to fire Scott Frost now, you know, Dan and I don't know all the details of that, so we won't really comment there. But just in terms of uh, the on-field performance of the team, uh, I think that this is the right decision for Trev to make. You know, I felt like Scott should have been fired potentially last year, but I understand Trev's reasons for not doing it, both for financial reasons as well as the fact that there was a very crowded coaching market at the time with many high-profile high-profile jobs being open and available, whereas right now uh, we're the first major job open of the season. Um, and I saw some people commenting that that's happened in the past, like with USC, when they fired Clay Helton, they fired him early in the season right. um, with the early signing period and things like that in the new world of college football we live in. It can be beneficial to get uh, a new head coach set up uh, early enough that they can start prepping for those things later in the year. Um, so I could see, you know, some strategic advantages to that. Um, but there's obviously going to be a lot of pressure now on Mickey Joseph to see what he can do to try to salvage this season, you know, if it is possible to do so, or is the team just going to collapse and everyone's going to kind of lose hope and we're going to be looking at like a 2-3 win season. Okay, I'm going to res- try to respond to two things if I can keep my brain clicking in the right direction. Number one would be um, that I am not as comfortable with this firing because I really want to have an explanation for why you wouldn't wait three weeks and save the university and the people who make contributions, your boosters, everyone, why you wouldn't wait three weeks to reduce that um, buyout by seven and a half million dollars. That's not a small amount of money. And to wait three weeks for that seems like that is a reasonable thing that's worth, would be worth doing. Um, So, I, I, I still question that, and I, and I think if this doesn't go well, this transition, Trev is going to be criticized to a pretty significant extent 
for making this decision. He's so calculating generally with his choices and decisions, and yet he was so, it seems, willing to, to just wave his magic wand and give up seven and a half million dollars. That seems out of character to him. So I'm, uh, there's something more that was at play there than I... Uh, then I... Um, that's public. Then it's pub- public, right. right. So that's number one. And then number two was, uh, uh, I think if Mickey handles this right, he can go into that team room and say, listen, guys, pressure's off. Everybody expects you guys to pack it in, give it up, and, you know, move on to next year, go to the portal, do whatever, right? We can just mail this thing in. Or we can double down... There's no pressure on us to win, and we can be the feel-good story of the season in uh, the college football environment. And if I'm Mickey, that's what I'm selling. I'm selling them on, this is what I believe we need to do. We're this close. Much A statement very similar to what Scott was saying, but the reason Scott never got off that hump was because he was choosing to use his time the wrong ways. And we're going to change the way we use our time, how we prepare for our opponents, and it's going to change the outcome, okay, and sell them on that. And there's no pressure on Mickey. I mean, effectively, he's already fired, right? So all the only thing he can do is, if he's successful, give himself an opportunity. If he's not, he will have no problem getting a job next year. The guy's a brilliant recruiter. He's obviously a, a good wide receivers coach. He will land on his feet no matter what, and he knows it. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, to the point of what you're saying, you know, I think it is, uh, if he is going to make that sort of locker room pitch, it's smart for him to acknowledge, you know, the rough situation, you know, rather than trying to say, you know, this team's so good and uh, I know that you guys have talent. We've been working hard all season, you know, da, 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 you know, I think good to be a bit of a realist about it with, with the players. I totally agree. So, yep. It'll be very interesting to see how that goes, especially since this change is coming right before a very big game for us <laughs> against Oklahoma that's going to be at home. Uh, so, but that's uh, even before this whole Scott Frost thing, we were expected to lose that game. Right. So the pressure to win was kind of off. Now it's definitely off. It's interesting. I, I just looked on uh, on the line and it's, it, they haven't pulled it. It's at 13 and a half. We're 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 a thirteen and a half point underdog. I would expect that might grow to like twenty, um, because of all these circumstances. Um, but that's maybe the perfect scenario. That's the perfect setup for Mickey to make a change and for those guys to come out fired up and for the crowd to be super intense next week. Right. Um, and one other thing I was going to mention was that Trev did mention in his interview that. Uh, Mickey is making some structural changes, you know, to things internally to kind of fit his vision for how things should be run. Obviously, we don't know any specifics there, um, but I'd be interested to see if we do see some sort of improvement, um, if that will become public. Like, oh, yeah, I shifted this around and we changed how we're doing practices, X, Y, Z. Right. You know, it's hard to make those sorts of changes mid-season, you know, and have a significant impact, but... If he could do it. <laughs> Apparently, um, uh, Mickey is going to have his press conference on Tuesday, which would normally be the day that Scott would uh, be available to the media. So we're going to hear from Mickey on Tuesday. That's what uh, that's the scoop that I'm getting as of Sunday night. 
So that'll be interesting to see what he has to say and how much he divulges. He he probably will be somewhat vague, I would guess, in in what the changes actually are. He'll speak in the more generic words and terms, uh, and he's not going to go into the specifics until um, sometime later. Right. I would agree with that. So, of course, there were many other games going on in the wider world of college football. Um, and on last week's podcast, we kind of said that, oh, yeah, there aren't like too many, you know, big top 25 type games. Um, but it ended up being one of the craziest weekends of college football I've seen in a, in a minute. Because we had uh, three top 10 teams lose right. uh, all in one day, which and, is pretty and, wild. And not lose to other, to lose to unranked teams. Right. Yeah. And some of them like being other Sunbelt teams like we lost to right. Georgia Southern. Um, this one was an interesting one. Uh, Alabama versus Texas. Of course, Texas has been kind of on hard times uh, in the past few years, so people weren't expecting them to really be able to hang with Alabama, who's the current number one ranked team. Uh, but right. Alabama ended up, but just barely squeaking out a win of twenty to nineteen. Alabama's they're not, they're not number one, are they? No, they are. They are, and yep. Georgia's number two. Georgia's number two. Okay, I thought it was the other way around. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep. Um, and I watched the recap of that game, and frankly, Texas should have won because they yeah. missed a very easy like twenty thirty yard field goal. Uh, and then they had a safety on Alabama that was then called for targeting, reviewed, and it was decided that it wasn't targeting, which was blindingly obvious to everybody in that stadium because, it, yeah, it wasn't even close. Um, but that reset the down, and so the safety never happened. So that's five points right there that Texas should have gotten. Wow. So... You put you mentioned that it was it's honestly kind of a perfect situation for Saban in that his team gets out of there with a W on their record, but their team made tons of mistakes, had like fifteen penalties, and he's gonna be able to grill those guys and get it out of their heads that you got these inflated egos because you're the number one team according to the media. No, you guys suck at this, 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 and this, and we're gonna get that better and go kick the ass of the team next week. <laughs> Exactly. As a coach, and particularly for Nick Saban, who's obviously the GOAT in this situation, uh, he got exactly what he needed to basically position his team to be the best that they can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And another crazy one was uh, Appalachian State, who just had a crazy game in Week 1 where they lost uh, 61-63 against North Carolina in a crazy high-scoring affair. Uh, they ended up beating Texas A&M in a much lower scoring affair of 17-14. And Texas A&M was like ranked number six or something like that. So in Texas A&M Stadium, the first time Appalachian State has upset a top 10 team since the famous win against Michigan, which you and I were uh, present for, yeah. as I recall. Um, and, you know, you could see these videos of the Appalachian State campus just going crazy with people flooding the streets and celebrating and everything so that that was quite the uh man they partied that night i'm guessing big in a big big way Mm -hmm. at appalachian state right and i think texas a&m was one of those schools that really invested a lot in the transfer portal you know and NIL. nil situations and things like that so definitely a big disappointment for them Yes, I would I would agree. But but again, that doesn't mean they don't have talent. That doesn't mean that they won't ultimately be a very good football team. Um, but that's a that's a a loss that they'll remember for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then here's another crazy one: uh, Marshall beat Notre Dame twenty six twenty one. 
Uh, so Notre Dame, who just was up against Ohio State in week one, you know, was looking competitive with them until like the fourth quarter. Then they come out and kind of lay an egg against Marshall of all teams. Uh, so not a good start for their new coach. No, that's true. Um, and, you know, but th- th- that is so classic, right? That you are, you're a team that fights and plays hard against a premier opponent the first week. Then you have a disappointing loss at the end. And then the next week you're, you're scheduled to play a team that's maybe not as good, right? Or you don't expect them to be as good. And then you lay the egg. Right. Yep. That's college football for you. It is. That's why we love it. Um, and then uh, in the Big Ten, uh, Wisconsin, who is ranked 19th, uh, lost to Washington State uh, 14-17. Um, and they even had a missed field goal, I remember seeing it earlier in the game. So that three points uh, could have been uh, made up by Wisconsin there. So a good win for the Pac-12. Um, and this was one that we gave a prediction for, actually, which was BYU-Baylor, a actual matchup of top 25 teams yeah. with BYU being 21 and Baylor being 9. Um, and BYU ended up winning in, uh, I believe it was double overtime, yeah. uh, 26 to 20. Wow. Uh, it was at BYU, um, so that was definitely a factor in it. Though, on the previous podcast, we both predicted that Baylor would win. Yes. Uh, I said uh, 45-35. You said 35-31. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely it didn't end up being as high scoring as I was thinking it was going to be. Um, you know, kind of odd for Baylor, you know, which is known for having a really that's kind of spread offense, very prolific, yeah. uh, struggling so much to score against BYU. Right. Well, and obviously BYU is ranked, so it's not like it was a complete surprise that they were a good football team, right? Uh, that was not. But the fact that those are, at least at this point, still scheduled to be future Big 12 uh, brethren uh, in the in the Big 12 conference uh, is uh, maybe an indication of what the future is going to look like in that conference because those will be two teams going in that are going to be some of the best teams in that league. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had uh, Florida going up against Kentucky, number 12 versus number 20. And Kentucky managed to win 26-16 after Florida beat uh, Utah the previous week. Right. Um, so that was another upset. Uh, Tennessee, ranked 24, beat Pitt. Pittsburgh, ranked uh, number 17. The score was 34-27. Yep. Uh, that was actually the game that was before our game right. and it went into overtime, and we had to switch the channel to uh, watch our game, as it turned out. Um, and this one's just sad for Nebraska fans. Yeah. Uh, Northwestern, the team we lost to in week one, uh, loses to Duke 31-23. <laughs> well, and more significantly is how they lost to Duke because uh, they weren't able to run the football. I mean, things that they were able to do with great success against us, they weren't able to do against Duke. Yeah. kind of tells you where we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could also be mentality, you know, because obviously oh, against yeah. us, they're the underdogs, whereas against Duke, Duke they're expected to win. And they were at home, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or no? I, I don't know if it was at home or not. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I don't uh, remember. But regardless, yeah, not a good look for us. Um, we'll have to see who Georgia Southern plays next week, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then this uh, rivalry game, classic uh, Iowa State versus Iowa. Iowa State won in a 10-7 to game, so another low-scoring affair for yeah. Iowa. Now, an, an interesting tie-in to our earlier discussion, Matt Campbell is the coach at Iowa State. 
Um, right. We've talked and, about him and in we've the past. talked about him as being a guy that might be in that mix of candidates, has a lot of the characteristics that we'd be looking for. Good fundamentals coach, has done enormously well with the resource limitations and the access to athlete limitations that he has at a place like Iowa State. He has done quite well, but this is the first time he's ever beaten Iowa in his years at Iowa mm. State. He's beaten Texas. He's beaten Oklahoma. In fact, he beat Oklahoma two years in a row when they were playing for national championships and had uh, in the Final Four and had uh, you know Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks. Uh, right. Uh, so they he knows how to prepare a team. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, he is definitely one that would be on my radar because I like what he's. You know, Done when there. we when we were in the Big Twelve, you know, in Nebraska and like the Bo Pelini, di- Bo Pelini days, uh, Iowa State was like the worst in the right. division. You know, year in and year out. Right. So the fact that he's been able to turn them around, like you say, with the limited resources at that school, is pretty impressive. Yep. Um, and then looking ahead to Week Three, um, there are a few interesting games, uh, especially within the Big Ten. Uh, Michigan State is playing against Washington from the Pac-12. Uh, Penn State is playing against Auburn from the SEC. And then we also have BYU coming off of that upset win playing against Oregon. Uh, and Miami going up against Texas A&M, who also lost. Yeah. Um, so some kind of redemption moments. You know, Oregon had that very ugly loss in their first game against uh, Georgia. Right. Um, so we'll have to see if they can uh, bounce back from that. Um, but we're going to focus in on that Penn State-Auburn game. Um I didn't check where it's being played, so I'll have to double-check that. But uh, what is your prediction for the score there? Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I, I'm going to have to admit not knowing much about Auburn um, Yeah, they played two nobodies so right. far so, this year. So it's hard one. to judge where they're at. And I, I'm going to – well, tell me tell me where it's at when you get to that because ah, I think it's important. At Auburn. It's at Auburn. Okay, then I'm going to switch. I was leaning Penn State as I contemplated this particular matchup, but I'm going to I'm going to lean to Auburn because it's a home for them. I, I really am. Uh, um, Penn State, you know, played so uh, up and down uh, in Week One against Purdue, Purdue. Yeah. Uh, and so I just don't know how together they are at this point. I know Penn State has a lot of talent. Uh, but I just, I'm just not sure, you know, about their uh, uh, stability as a consistent football team. And if you have to go in and play Auburn at Auburn, that is a tough venue, very tough. Mm-hmm. And so I expect Auburn to be the victor in that. Now, score, not knowing what the offenses are, are really going to be able to produce. So I'm going to say 31-24 Auburn. Okay. Um, for the sake of uh, creating a little intrigue here, I think I'm going to go with Penn State, say that the higher-ranked team is going to win this one. Um, but I think it will be close because, obviously, Auburn's a very talented team, and they're playing at home where they typically do better. You know, the Iron Bowl, you know, so many times with Alabama, right? They've uh, managed to pull out the upset when they're playing in their home stadium. Uh, so I'll go ahead and say that Penn State wins... Let's say uh, 27-24. Okay. All right. A close one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last game, of course, we have to talk about is uh, Nebraska's next game, which is against Oklahoma, you know, classic rival. We played them last year in Oklahoma. This time it's going to be in Lincoln at Memorial Stadium. 
Um, but obviously, we've just had this huge shakeup, and our defense is playing like garbage. Um, whereas they have they haven't played anybody of real significance yet, but they put up great numbers against them. Um, and we did bring it close against them last year. Uh, frankly, should have won. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. You know, they have a new coach. Obviously, you know, had to replace a lot of players that transferred out and things like that. Um, so they've got some unknowns going into this game, but we have more, especially with uh, Mickey Joseph now taking over as the coach. You know, are we going to be able to put something together? You know, I feel pretty good that given how our offense has been so far this year, that we'll, we'll be able to score some points. But the problem is if Georgia Southern was able to put up, you know, 45 on us, how much is Oklahoma going to be able to do with all their talent? Right, exactly. Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, um, number one, the Oklahoma team is now coached by uh, a, an intense defensive-minded head coach. Okay, so their defense is going to come ready to play. He is a guy that was around Oklahoma. He was the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma before, many years ago before he was at Clemson. So, so, so right. he uh, knows Oklahoma is intimately familiar with the tradition and the history of Nebraska versus Oklahoma. So none of that is going to be lost on him, okay? Uh, secondly, their offense, I think, is actually performing better than I would have maybe expected them to. And the reason we were in the game last year was because our defense played really well in against them. Well, our defense is a, is a shadow of its former self from last year. And I have a feeling that they that he will recognize that and he's a guy that's super intense and when he smells blood he's going to go after it and I suspect his team will do the same thing um, now one little interesting caveat um, um, Oklahoma was uh, down in Norman was the site of the end of Mickey Joseph's career when he was playing for Nebraska as coach Mickey got tackled out of bounds a, a, a you know a, a clear um, personal foul of in today's day and age but wasn't then uh and he was thrown into the the bench of the oh. players because back then well even now in the norman family the stadium there down in norman the uh uh the there is a brick wall around the the, the field okay it's not that far from the actual lines okay right. and so they had these metal bleachers and he was thrown into this metal bleacher and it literally lacerated his calf just cut it completely open through the muscle everything he you could see bone uh in his calf and he was never the same after that injury i mean he was bleeding like a stuck pig too uh and and he's going to remember that <laughs> well, so, yeah i don't think that's so, something you forget right so <laughs> so just maybe he'll be able to you'll you'll hear that story i'm guaranteeing you in the prep for this matchup they're going to talk about that. They'll probably show that thing over and over again. I don't well, know. well, it so, might be a little gruesome. Yeah. Um, well, I, it wasn't that bad on TV until later. There were there were like photography photos and stuff that okay, captured okay. better than the because you know it was grainy back then. Right. This is in 1980. Well, right. Well, I, I remember you telling me that story before. I didn't realize that that was Mickey Joseph, our now current <laughs> head coach. <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and uh, it's. Uh, Brett Venables is yes. the current head coach there at Oklahoma, and you're right. Yeah, he is obviously did great things with the defense at Clemson, uh, especially during their like national championship years and all that stuff. Um, 
So he's a crazy man. <laughs> right. He really is. He just goes nuts. Yeah. Um, so I'd I'd like to th- be optimistic and think that you know we can uh, we can keep it close at least, and we do have a penchant during the Scott Frost era of losing close games. You know, uh, so he's if he's good at one thing, it's been that. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna go ahead and predict that Oklahoma wins, but that we keep it competitive and that it's not a blowout, um, but that will be high scoring. So I'll go ahead and say, uh, let's say uh, 49 for Oklahoma and 42 Nebraska. Wow. Okay. I'm being optimistic. I'm going to say that it's going to be 56 to 14 Oklahoma. Oof. I think Oklahoma is going to take us behind the woodshed and beat us to a pulp. I think, I think that Venables would like nothing more than to be able to just embarrass the shit out of of Nebraska in their home stadium. Mm-hmm. So, I, I if he gets the opportunity, he's going to do it. And if things don't go well for us early, I think this thing could come undone really fast for Nebraska. So, so we'll see. I I'm opti- I, I, I'm hopeful that what you say is true and that, you know, we have a fired up crowd because people are going to be wanting to support the team and wanting to support Mickey in his first game, you know, as interim coach and everything. And there's going to be great energy in that crowd to begin the game. But then the game starts. And our <laughs> lack of talent on the defensive line and the offensive line is going to show itself rather quickly against a very talented Oklahoma team. And then ugly things happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, of course, this is, of course, the classic Red River shootout rivalry, you know, from past years. <laughs> No, it is not. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the Texas. That's the Texas. The Texas rivalry. Oklahoma. But but it's a is, historic rivalry. Yes, it's a historic rivalry with Oklahoma. So I was expecting that no matter what, you know, the stadium's going to be fired up. The fans are going to be excited for that game, uh, even though we're the underdogs. But I also think that takes a bit of pressure off of us because yes. we have been the favorites in the three games so far, you know. And in games where we have been the underdogs, you know, in the past few years, we've been able to keep it close a lot of the times. Right. Frankly, should have won many of them, you know, where right. we were in the lead going to the fourth quarter or something. That is true. So. And, and 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 I have to say, you know, again, we don't lack talent. We, especially with our offensive skills people, uh, if our offensive line could just get their stuff together and really start to play as a cohesive unit and and they did you know it's georgia southern but in the second half i mean there was a pocket for uh thompson a lot of the time and all he needs is a pocket you know uh his problem is when he starts getting happy feet his performance deteriorates rapidly that's what i've seen in these first three games so we need him to feel comfortable in that pocket mm-hmm yeah um, and one thing we didn't mention earlier about the Georgia Southern game that I'm going to go back to for just a moment uh, is to compliment uh, Clay Helton, their coach, for coming in with a good scheme to go up against Nebraska and for their uh, players for executing at a high level. Uh, even though the quarterback threw two interceptions, uh, in general, he was on point the whole game, you know, and like they had a wide receiver who made like a beautiful one handed catch, you know, the quarterback throwing these dimes over receiver shoulders into the end zone and stuff like that. So, and our coverage was good. A lot of the coverage was good. A lot of the time. So, 
you know, you have to give them credit, you know, for coming in and executing at a high level, you know, not making too many penalties. Right. You know, with the exception of the first half mess up, which was a big mistake by them. That's something I'm curious to see, you know, if, if we can catch Oklahoma a little flat footed, that would be great. Uh, though the fact that we came so close to being them last year makes me think they'll be a little more focused this time. Exactly. And we don't have the defense to hang with them. Unlike last year. And that's year. the thing. Defense travels, you know, offense, not so much. Right. So, so the problem is, is that since our weakness this year is our defense, you just don't know what's going to happen with, with, uh, with our offense. Are, are we going to be able to move against this team? Because they're going to be the best defense we've played by far. Right. So I think our offensive production is going to be greatly diminished. Um, and I, I'm worried about Thompson's life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, he did get sacked twice against Georgia Southern. Um, and you know that uh, Oklahoma's got a different yeah, level of athlete. Yeah. Oklahoma's going to be coming for that hard. So, yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, we'll probably do our next podcast uh, remotely again because I'll be heading back to L.A. after the Oklahoma game. Um, but it's been great to be here in person with you, Dad, to do the podcast like the good old days. I'm glad we got to do it this way. Yep. And even though it was a loss, it was fun being together as a, our whole family pretty yeah. much was together. for. And, and you the were Georgia the optimist all the way to the end, and I was the miserable pessimist. Yes. Which is also typical. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm here to uh, try to bring him out of the dumps, you know, <laughs> see, see see the glasses half full, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see how much I'm able to do that against Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. All right. So if you all out there enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can reach out to us at huskerpeat13 at gmail.com. You can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We'd love to hear from you guys about what can we can improve with the podcast and your thoughts on who would be a good candidate for the next head coach of Nebraska. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. So thank you all out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me. Until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.